cold day. Uh, it is a delight to be in the house of the Lord this morning, and I would ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of First Kings. If you don't, then you can listen in. Uh, but if you're a little bit unfamiliar with your Bible, First Kings is in the Old Testament. Um, it's you know just a few books in. If you have a hard time with it, ask someone to the side of you, or just look it up in the table of contents. And tonight, or today, we're going to talk about the dark night of the soul. Now, I'd like to show a cartoon uh, to you that you undoubtedly all are familiar with by Charles Schultz. Can we cue that up, Leanne? Oh, it's not showing the cartoon. Well, if you've seen Peanuts, then you'll have an understanding of what's going on. I'll explain it to you. It was actually in October, on October 2nd, 1950, at the height of the American post-war celebration, an era when unhappy was antisocial rather than personal emotion, that a 27-year-old Minnesota cartoonist, cartoonist named Charles M. Schultz introduced the Funny Papers, a group of children who told one another the truth. And it has this within the first caption. Charlie Brown is saying, I have deep feelings of depression. Said to Lucy in an early strip, and, and he says, what can I do about it? She says, snap out of it. That'll be five cents. Now, that comic strip, Peanuts, I believe so dramatically illustrates how many of us deal with depression. Today we're going to talk about depression, discouragement, despair, the doldrums, the blues. Because sometimes people say, oh, Christians shouldn't struggle with this. And then we, we try to give one-line answers like, snap out of it. What's your problem? Where's your joy? What sin are you holding on to? And we, we oversimplify it and fail to realize that it's, it's a very complex thing. And if statistics are right... The majority of the people in this room at one time or another have struggled or will struggle with depression. Now, there are times where we just have dark nights, where we go through difficult times. We might simply be discouraged. But there are other times when we have prolonged seasons of depression. And we're going to see that today through the man who is, who is just like us, Elijah. Who he's, we can look through his life and see that he struggled just like we do. And we can draw from his example some encouragement and some things that I hope to share with us today, how we can all deal with it at one time or another. And we've all dealt with it. We've all felt those times where everything just seemed like there was no light at the end of the tunnel. That we couldn't go on. But I hope to show today that we can go on by God's grace, working in our lives, shown to us, and how we can encourage one another on in our walk with Christ for those who are struggling with discouragement or depression or how we can draw encouragement if we are struggling with it ourselves. So please, if you haven't turned with me already, I hope you have already, to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to be reading the entire chapter today, and it's a custom here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the honor of reading God's Word. And if you don't have a Bible, just listen in as we go through this. And stay with me. Uh, it is 21 verses. It shouldn't be that long. In Ezra's day, they stood for six hours, so no complaining. Okay? 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he laid down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and bore in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound, 
of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu be put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with, plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my mother, my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Blessed be to the reading and understanding of his word. You may be seated. There is a great deal within this passage. I don't think we'll be able to cover the entirety of it today as much as I would like and focus on the the different details. But I would like to focus and walk through the passage as best as we possibly can. Elijah had just come off one of the greatest victories that we've ever seen within Scripture, as we've learned in the past several weeks. We remember how God miraculously had told him that there would be a drought in the land and because of the idolatry of the nation of Israel, and it wouldn't rain except by Elijah's word. We know that God had him go out to the brook of Cherith where he was, where he was sustained by ravens bringing him food and he was drinking by the, the brook until it dried up. And then God sent him to the widow of Zarephath where she sustained him with uh, a, two jars that were... Unexhaust, or inexhaustible. One had oil and one had flour. And as long as they depended upon the Lord, that wasn't exhausted. We also saw him raise a young man from the dead, which was an amazing thing because never before in history had that ever been done. And not only that, he goes further. He, we know that he goes to Mount Carmel where we see one of the greatest showdowns in all of Scripture. One of the most amazing and enriching and powerful stories in the entirety of the Bible, where Elijah battles the 450 prophets of Baal in in the battle of the century, where they prepare their offering, they call in the name of their God, and there's no rain. I mean, it was a drought. It was famine. But what does Elijah do? He, He rebuilds the altar. He puts the sacrifice on it, and then he just drenches it with water. And then he prays to the Lord. God answers by fire, consumes the sacrifice, and even licks up the water that had been around the trench that he had built for it. The 450 prophets are defeated and then killed. It's a great victory. It's a time of just amazing jubilation for him, or so you would think. I mean, he goes to the top of Mount Carmel and he prays, and then God brings the rain. Can you imagine that? Having Just know that your prayer brought rain and you could see the cloud coming in. I mean, after he continued to persist in his prayer, God brings it. And then it's just, just a downpour. I mean, what great victory, what great encouragement, what just inspiration, what confidence that would give an individual. Nevertheless, Elijah hears the report from Jezebel. I mean, he just defeated 450 prophets of Baal, and yet the report comes from Jezebel after Ahab had made his way home, at the command of Elijah, by the way, makes his way home and tells Jezebel what happened. Infuriated, she issues a death sentence on Elijah. She says, may the gods deal with me ever so severely if by this time tomorrow that the same thing happened to them doesn't happen to you. And what's he do? He makes like Usain Bolt and takes off. He's afraid. Deathly afraid. He leaves. Matter of fact, he leaves the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. Remember, the nation uh, was split in this period of time. We have the northern kingdom. We have the southern kingdom. The United States, we'd say just north versus south. Imagine two kingdoms that way. That's what happened. And he's in the northern kingdom and he flees to the southern kingdom. He abandons his servant. 
And then he goes and goes under a broom tree and prays that he might die. But what I'd like, to, like us to look at as we go through this, as we look at Elijah's life, that we can see that we are a little bit like him. We can see through him the misery that we can experience as Christians. That's the first point that I'd like us to take home today, that the misery we can experience as Christians. All too often, I have heard, rather than the Scripture quoted, I've heard Bobby McFerrin quoted in churches. Bobby McFerrin. I didn't know he was a theologian or an apostle. But man, his, his, his words are just quoted a lot, you know? Right? And it's, don't worry, be happy, right? And many times we as Christians, we say that. Where's your joy? But we, instead of really inquiring about it, we look at it superficially. And then instead of dealing with the pain in our hearts, we put on masks. Seriously, I, I think that there are many Christians in churches that could vie for the Oscar on any given occasion. Because we can put up big fronts. We walk, I mean, I, I don't know if you've been like this, you've been in a, a, just a difficult time, had a difficult, you get to church, and you really, you don't even want to be there. You look like death warmed over. And I don't know if there's an amen there, Bertha, but we'll go with it. But we feel that discouragement. I remember there's times even as a pastor, I, I don't feel that way. I mean, there, there's times where I don't feel joy. I'm just being very honest. As a matter of fact, Gene Wade, got to love you, Gene. God bless you, brother. He comes back, he goes, how are you doing? I'm like, I hate life! I don't want to preach! He's like, God bless you. <laughs> Appreciate your honesty. And I felt good after that, surprisingly. I just needed to lay that out there because we all feel discouragement. And I think Elijah felt that. The misery that we can experience. Because see, what he wasn't seeing was the victory. He was seeing the defeat. He was saying all the 450 prophets have been defeated, but he goes, Jezebel is still alive. She's still in charge. Wickedness is still reigning. He couldn't delight in the victory. He was too busy looking at the defeat. And the hurdles in front of him, rather to see how far he'd come, he still saw how far he had to go. It's like a marathon runner. When you're running along, I don't know if you've ever done this, but you get to the end of it, and I mean, you get to the 20-mile mark, and most marathon runners train up to 20 miles. You don't run 26 until the day of the marathon. Because it's a mental thing. You realize you have a little bit further to go. But I remember hitting the 20-mile mark going, man, I got 6.2 miles left. I don't have anything. It's too much. And you see people just walking off the race. It's like you've come so far. Don't quit. Don't quit. With Elijah, that's what we want to we, we see is, is that he, he's not, he, he can't quit, but that's what he does. Now see, this, these experiences that we can have as Christians, just like Elijah had, cause a few different things here. Look what he did. In verse number 3. Or when he says, then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. See, these experiences, that this misery that we can experience can cause us to run away in fear. Have you ever had that when you feel overwhelmed, you feel discouraged, you just want to quit, you want to run away in fear? You may not feel prepared, you may not feel spiritually up to the battle, you might have had just a great victory and now you feel defeated. I mean, I've had that. Even this past week, I had a little moment where I started to run away in fear. I was studying down in my basement, and I was reading my Bible, and I came upstairs, and, and I, I hadn't showered yet. I had breath similar to what I think Genghis Khan had, and uh, my hair looked a little bit like uh, Don King, and um, I was just walking up the stairs, and I, I, my kids are, made my house look like a disaster area, like a hurricane swept through. Mount Laundry is a piled on my living room chair, when I look out the window and I see a pair of two people park a van and walking to the neighbors just knocking on doors, and I, my reaction, who is it? Jehovah's Witness or Mormons. And I, my first reaction was, honey, turn off the TV. Put the blinds down. Kids, get upstairs. I was being very honest because I kept thinking of all the things that were wrong in my house. I kept thinking, I can't have these people in. I'm not ready to go. I'm not prepared for this. And I just, you know, I'd preached a sermon a day or two before. And I, and, I, and I stopped in the middle of it. And I said, you know, if I don't talk to them, who will? So I said, honey, man in the house, I'm going to run upstairs, take a shower. I came down. I started rehearsing. I was getting excited by that time. I kept rehearsing all the stuff in my mind. Just going, oh, come on in. Let's talk. Let's open the Bible, shall we? I wanted to do that. I was getting excited about it. And what they do? They pass by my house. 
But see, these feelings that we can have can cause us to run away in fear. That's what Elijah did. He hears a threat and he just takes off. He takes off. He runs away in fear. But these experiences can do more than that, more than just cause us to run away. Look at verse 4 with me. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Took away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He'd already left his servant behind. He'd went a day's journey into the wilderness, sat down under this tree, and then he prays that God might hasten his own death. Remarkable. Now from this, we can see that these experiences of discouragement and or depression can cause us to rationalize worthless feelings. We can rationalize them. We can give ourselves over to them. Have you ever felt that way? The feelings that you have, I'm just worthless. I, 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 I'm not doing any good. I'm not a godly person. I, I don't read my Bible enough. I don't pray enough. I'm not holy enough. God, I, I just can't do this anymore. Just, just kill me now. I, I, it's, it's too hard to keep on. I think many of us have experienced that. We felt those feelings of despair and worthlessness. And Elijah, we can see him. He's trying to rationalize. You know, I'm no better than my father's. Was he better than his father's? Yeah, he was. He was. He was a, a godly man, a man who was pursuing God. He was pressing after Him hard. But yet, because of this death threat, because of his, he's just discouraged and tired and all these other things are amplified, he gets really down. Now, as we, we look at this, and we see that these reactions seem natural, we must remember the flawed heroes in Scripture and realize that, you know what, he's not the only one. Sometimes we think, oh, people in the Bible didn't deal with discouragement or depression. That's not true. Paul says, I despaired of even life itself. I mean, think about that. Moses, Job, I mean, Job. Job's suffering was so bad that when his three friends showed up in Job chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, it says, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. He looked so bad. He was so down. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Or even consider Moses in Numbers chapter 11, verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight? That you lay the burden of all these people on me. Did I conceive all of them? Did I give them birth? That you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this, all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I have favor in your sight, then I may not see my wretchedness. I mean, Moses felt afflicted. He wasn't able to bear with all of the different things that God had for him. It was a burden too heavy. He wanted to die. He blamed God and he was displeased. That was his condition. But what was the cause? It was because people were complaining all the time. They cried to him. The people wept because of a mixed multitude, and the Lord was angry and greatly aroused, and he kept hearing the people weeping. I mean, or think of David. David, I mean, the Psalms. Throughout the Psalms, David, you just see this downcast soul. You know what's been said? that More tears have been cried on the pages of the Psalms than any other book of the Bible. You see raw emotion. The raw feelings. They're cries for vindication. Cries for justice. For help. There's cries of sorrow. Humiliation. There's so many different things that we can see within the Scriptures. Different people struggling with depression. Or even consider Jeremiah who was so anguish-filled and depressed at the disobedience of God's people that he was even called the weeping prophet. I mean, his words weren't even accepted. He continually to talk to them and they wouldn't listen to everything that he was going through. It was unimaginable. Or even consider different individuals and figures within church history. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, John Calvin, both of them were known to struggle with depression. And probably one of the greatest examples is Charles Spurgeon, who struggled with gout so much that it caused him to have to go away from his church for periods of time. It just caused him so much pain. And he had so, so many dark nights of the soul of himself. We all can go through different times 
or struggling with depression, depression or, or just discouragement. And there can be a variety of causes. It could be physical, it could be circumstantial, it could be mental, and it could be sinful. Now allow me to explain, and I would, I, would, I would encourage you to write this down. I don't have this in your notes. Physical things can affect us spiritually and may cause depression. Physical things that can affect us spiritually and may cause depression. If that's the case, then we must look for a solution medically or medicinally. Now, I'm going to explain this. Okay, Here's what I mean by that. If you might have... Now, now all things are caused by the fall. All of our physical conditions are caused by the fall. Cancer, all of these different things. Cancers, heart disease, uh, strokes, all of these things come through the fall. Okay. Now, one of the things that can also happen is we can get... Uh, we can have chemical imbalances, hormones, things like that. Those physical things can affect us spiritually. The same can happen if we don't get sleep, we don't get rest. These things can affect us spiritually. All right. Now, some of these things that are physical ailments might need medical assistance. But let me look at the converse side of it. Let's look at it. There are some things that might be spiritual things that affect us physically. Now, remember what I just said, first of all. I said there are physical things that can affect us spiritually. Now, there are spiritual things that can affect us physically. Now, here's what I mean by that. When David, after he sinned with Bathsheba in Psalm 32, we get a glimpse into his depression. He writes, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, we can see here that David's physical condition came about because of his spiritual condition. He sinned, he wouldn't confess his sin to the Lord, so it started to affect him physically. Paul also talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For those who are, have taken communion in an irreverent and wrong manner. That he says, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Their spiritual choices affected their physical body. All right? So we have to understand and how to apply this. One is solved medicinally, right? Where we have certain medicines for that. Those are the physical things that can affect us spiritually. But we are not to treat things medicinally when there are spiritual things that are affecting us physically. See, there's a difference there. There's a nuance. We have to pay very close attention to that. I've encountered some Christians that just say it's a sin problem. Well, ultimately, all things are sin problems. But in some instances, it might be a physical thing that it's affecting them spiritually. So no amount of counsel is going to affect someone that has cancer that is affecting their mental state or someone has dementia. All right? We need to be understanding of that. So just to, to make sure we have that, and I want to make sure I'm absolutely clear, there are physical things that can affect us spiritually, and the solution might be medically or medicinally, but there may be spiritual things that affect us physically, and that can only be solved biblically. It can only be solved biblically. Right? That's through the counsel of the Word of God. That is through looking to the Word of God and, and showing it up as a mirror to our souls. If we are holding on to sin, if we are turning our backs away from God, that things can show, some of those things can affect us physically because of our spiritual condition. And you have to ask yourself the question and examine yourself to say, well, how do I know which one? Well, ask God to show it to you. He will. He will. He will show you if it's a physical condition or it might be an ailment that is brought upon you to make you depend greater upon the grace of God. As Paul said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So it could be within that realm. We have to ask ourselves these questions. That's why I say some depression might be caused by sin. It could be caused by circumstance where as Elijah, everybody, he just gave up. It could be a physical condition could be a variety of different things. David goes on, consider Psalm 38. I just want to drive this point home. Psalm 38, David writes, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. He is experiencing the physical malady of his spiritual condition. It's coming out in him physically because he's holding on to his sin. He says, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed, 
I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before You. My sighing is not hidden from You. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose truth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. And then we come to the, the climax. He says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. See, it wasn't until it, it kept taking him over and it started affecting him physically. Now, some people have these physical problems because they've made, they've made rebellious choices. And God will bring that about. There's others, though, that that's not the case. Though they're caused by the fall, we have to be, pay very close attention and use great discernment when we diagnose or try to diagnose these certain issues, determining whether they are physical, sinful, circumstantial, or simply mental. Now, it's hard to, turn, hard to determine which Elijah's was. It could have been physical, which we will see in a moment, or it could have been circumstantial, as he was simply tired of fighting and dealing with Baalism. Whatever the case may be, we can see that through God's dealing with Elijah, we see the medicine that God gives to encourage us, that God gives to him. Now, this is, we can really try to bring this home. Look at verse 5. And he laid down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. See, God knows that we are but dust and deals kindly with us. And, and with Elijah, God gave some serious encouragement. And this encouragement involves some serious care. That's the first point I'd like you to write down. There are two sub-points that I don't have within your notes. What did God give him? Well, He enables him to sleep, so He gives him rest. And then He feeds him. He gives him refreshment. So there's rest and refreshment. You know, sometimes we just need a good nap, a good night's sleep. I need to eat better. You know, I'm really saddened. I saw an article this past week uh, on, that MSNBC ran entitled, Praise the Lard, L-A-R-D, question mark, Religion Linked to Obesity in Young Adults. The article was based on research done at Northwestern University with the results presented at the American Heart Association. And they followed 2,433 men and women starting between the ages of 20 and 32 for 18 years. Study subjects were all of normal weight at the beginning of the study. By the end, however, those who had attended a religious function at least once a week were more likely to be obese, posting a body mass index of 30 or higher. Now, that's not, that shouldn't be. The reason is because many of us are, are too busy enjoying the potlucks. <laughs> You don't see too many, you know, healthy things at a potluck. It's usually big giant meatballs and sticks of butter just, you know, sliced and stuff like that. I mean, we can just gorge ourselves, but, you know, gluttony is a sin. And our eating habits can affect our spiritual condition. If we are continually gorging ourselves, that we can't take in the things of, of God. We need to learn how to also deny ourselves. This is where fasting comes in. Fasting helps cleanse us. Can gives us after the hunger pains. If you're depending on how long of a fast you're on, but after three days, people say that the hunger pains that they're really big on the third day, but on the fourth, fifth day they start to subside. Your your mind becomes clear. You start getting rid of the toxins in your body. So fasting even has medicinal value for a period of time to cleanse us. But sometimes it just means changing our diet and eating right and getting exercise and rest. What's your exercise regime? I mean. We should be exercising. And our sedentary lifestyle where we can sit behind a desk all day, it, we can get fat. Fat. Now, I understand there's a different parts with genetics and things like that. The question is, are you being healthy with who you are? I'm not saying everybody has to be an ideal weight. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that we should take a hold of our eating and our exercise and our rest. We need to get better sleep. 
Now, it's amazing to me that we have so many time savers in our world today, yet we're more busy than ever, and we have a hard time sleeping, and we have all this extra time, supposedly. Why is that? Why is it that we, I mean, before we had, I remember when my grandmother got a microwave. Man, that was fast. Things didn't have to cook so long. Or washer and dryer. That made things faster. Some of you remember those days where you didn't have it? All of these different things were meant to save us time. We had instant and we had drive-through and man, I have time to do other stuff. And now we get to, in our lives in 2011, we get to the end of the night and you're like, I just don't have time. Well, how is that? Why is that? See, God has built a theology of rest, even within the scripture. What did God do on the seventh day after he created the heavens and the earth? Rested. Did God need rest? No. No. Why did he do that? So would it be an example to us, we who are created in the image of God, that we might work six, rest one. Work six, rest one. We're to rest, to rest, to get some rest, to get some refreshment. And that's what God does for Elijah. He gives him rest in verses 5 through 7. The angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. That's a command I think I can follow. No problem. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake of bread on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. He was exhausted, battling all that, everything. It's amazing when we don't get sleep how little minor things are aggravated. Have you ever had that? For those who have your kids or grandkids or somebody you work with, you didn't get enough sleep, and somebody says, hey, where's the sugar for the coffee? I hate you! Stop pressuring me! We do stuff like that. It's because we don't have enough rest. We need to follow the Bible's admonition and command to rest and eat well and even get some exercise, whether that just means walking so much a day, maybe it means going to a gym, whether it means changing your eating habits and just walking up and down the stairs more often, whatever it may be, add and increase your exercise time. He needed a good night's sleep. That's what Elijah needed. He needed a good night's sleep. Let's continue on. We know that we must eat well and exercise, uh, but we can see that God's giving Elijah rest and refreshment, but it goes further. Look at verse 8. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mounts of God. Let's get our bearings here. Elijah was in what kingdom? The northern kingdom. All right. And now where is he running to? The southern kingdom. So he's leaving and leaving Jezebel behind. He leaves his servant And he goes to Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb was well known in Jewish history, for it was the place where Moses encountered God at the burning bush. Some scholars believe even that Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai, where Moses received the Ten Commandments. But that is a bit difficult to determine with certitude. Horeb was the location where Moses struck the rock to bring forth water and angered God because he failed to uphold the Lord as holy. He was only to speak to it, but by striking it, he showed a total disregard for God and His commandments. But let's look back at verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. No mention of the fire of God. No mention of the victory on Mount Carmel. He doesn't see the people returning their hearts back to God. He just sees the idolatry. And he said, verse 11, this is what God says, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I think that God was asking a question, not because he didn't know, because Elijah needed to understand. Just the same that he did with Adam and Eve. When they had sinned and they had hidden in the garden and God appears in the garden and says, where are you? Not that he didn't know, it's that Adam and Eve might know where they are. And he's, he's making Elijah question himself, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now it's interesting that he has the, the fire and the earthquake and scholars are completely divided as to the exact meaning of that. For myself, 
I think it's because he's showing the, the pow- his power, his immensity, just as he showed his fire. But he's showing that all of these great external things compare nothing to my voice and my word. It's the power in the word, the low whisper. Man shall not, man shall not be sustained by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He was showing the integrity and the power of His Word, who He is. He's also showing great compassion. We can see here that God was compassionate with Elijah in His gentle response. There was strong wind, earthquake, fire, but then the low whisper. He's being gentle with Elijah. That's not in your notes. But He was being gentle and He was also being gracious. You can write those down. He says he gives him grace. Elijah had just told about everything that was going on in the nation. And not all of that was true. He failed to mention the prophets that Obadiah had hid. He didn't mention any of that. His perspective is still so focused on the circumstance and how bad it was that he couldn't see clearly. But this is the, the really genius part of it. Where do we go to get perspective? Go to God. Go to God. If you're having a hard time maintaining a perspective, which he was, go to God and God will clear it away real fast. He'll clear it away. He'll remove all of those things, those great external miracle things, and he'll focus right and hone your spirit through his word as he applies his word to your heart. He showed great compassion and gentleness. Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, in verse 14, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. But how does the Lord respond? Go to return to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, in verse 15, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Yehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Moholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Yehu be put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Yehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will, I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. See, God gives him grace. He gives him grace. He doesn't chide or rebuke him, but is gracious to him and recommissions him for the task that he has for him. He gives Elijah, in essence, some clarification. Some clarification. See, when we go to the Lord, when we're, we're dealing with all of these things, God will clarify those things. I can't tell you how many times I've just dealt with the struggle and I've, I refused to pray and I didn't want to pray. And then when I finally get down on my knees and I begin to pray, God reveals and clarifies the situation. And I usually discover that it's not as bad as I thought it was. God says, you know what? It's, it's not your issue to deal with. I'm the Lord. You're, the one that, you're not the one that changes hearts and minds. It's my job. He gives some clarification. That's what he does with Elijah. He says, by the way, I've got a task for you. I'm recommissioning for you. I'm recommissioning you for another task. And just, just for your information, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed the knee or kissed Baal, showing allegiance to them. They refuse to do so. Sometimes we think we're the only one. We think we're the only believer in our school or in our workplace, in our family. And we just say, I, there's no one else. And then God shows someone else that we didn't know about. It's amazing how that works. I, I had some friends that I met in Massachusetts uh, while I was pastoring out there. I met a young man and his wife, uh, Jeff and Charity, and, and uh, Jeff had just recently come to the, really come to start walking with the Lord. And he was growing by leaps and bounds when they, they finished schooling in Massachusetts and they moved out here to Galena. And uh, we came back out to, uh, out to Aurora or moved out in this area. And I went back and visited the first church I ever served with in Chicago. And I'm at a 75th year anniversary. And I'm sitting at this table. And then uh, the, there was a young couple that were there. And the young girl was talking to me. And she said, you know, uh, she goes, where'd you go to school? And I said, I told her I went to school in Massachusetts. She goes, well, my cousin went to school in Massachusetts. I said, yeah. I said, really? I said, uh, what's his name? And she goes, Jeff. I said, really? So what was his last name? She goes, Rouse. I'm like, you're kidding me said he was in my church. I said, he's, he's a dynamic believer. She goes, I had no idea that he was a believer. That change just must occur in the last few years. I said, yeah. And she goes, well, I just became a believer myself. I thought there was no one in my whole family. So immediately I called my cell phone and I dialed Jeff and then I just held it to his cousin. <laughs> and, and it was amazing to see that they had encouragement to draw from one another, to pray for their family, to reach their family as they both found out the joy that they both possessed as believers. See, you're not the only one. God has someone. Now, you might be the only one there for a period of time, but God is honoring that. Remember, 
God is working. There's seed that's going forth. Some of it's growing beneath the soil and you don't see it yet. That God will reap. There will be a harvest one day. God has promised that there will be. He says right now that the fields are white for harvest. There are people out there ready to respond to the gospel and your testimony. And some of them have already come to the Lord. You don't know it yet. I remember a friend of mine who uh, went to high school with, and uh, he definitely didn't know Jesus. Definitely didn't know Jesus. And I'd, grow, I'd come to know the Lord, and it'd been a few years, and maybe five or six years had passed, and I found ourselves, we were playing just a, a pickup football game in my friend's yard, and, and uh, me and my best friend were playing uh, on the same team, and, and he became a believer in the last year. And we see this other guy, and he shows up with a Lord's Gym t-shirt on. You remember those t-shirts a few years ago and had Jesus bench pressing the cross, which was, don't get me started on that. But, um, and we're looking at him going, why is he wearing that shirt? Does he know the Lord? I don't know. Let's try to figure out. So we're playing football and we hear a few expletives pop out of his mouth. We're like, well, he doesn't know Jesus. <laughs> and we say that and we continue to play. And then I, I finally, though, I started noticing more of a change in him in the next few times we're together. And I said, I finally have to ask the question, have you come a believer? He said, yeah, I did just a few, just a few months ago. He says, God's working with me. I'm not, I'm not there yet, but God's working within me. So we don't know. If you would have asked me, if he was, he was one of the farthest person, people that I ever thought would go, be away from Christ. But God was working within him. God works in ways that we don't understand. And see, Elijah's learning through God's testimony, God's word to him, I've reserved 7,000. Don't worry, you're not the only one left. Don't freak out. You're not doing it all by yourself. I've got it taken care of. So he gives him some clarification. But let's continue on. We can also see from God's interaction with Elijah the mission God calls discouraged Christians to engage in. The mission God calls discouraged Christians to be engaged in. Now here's what I want to show you. To fulfill our mission, we must be reminded of our calling. See, Elijah, God reminds Elijah. He says, I want you to go and anoint to be king over Israel Yehu, the son of Nimshi, but first he was to anoint Haziel, the king over Syria. See, one of the job of a prophet was to anoint kings. But up until that time, Elijah hadn't done any of that stuff. He was too busy delivering the news of rebuke and God's judgment. And God says, you know what? I still got another task for you. You're not done yet. I want you to go and anoint him, and I want you to anoint your successor. I've got a mission for you. I'm reminding you of your calling. What has God called you to do? To be reminded of that. I think of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, his admonition to pastors, young men that were pursuing pastoral ministry. He told them, he said, if you can do anything else, then be a pastor, then do it. Do it. He said, because nothing will get you through the dark days except the call of God on your life. Because you're going to be up to your ears with sin and problems and broken lives and broken marriages and just terrible tragedies of life, and you're going to want to throw in the towel. The guys that just do it for prestige, that's what happens. But he says what holds on to anything else in the dark night of the soul is that God has called you. But what has God called you to do? What has God gifted you to do? Who has God called you to reach we're in the midst of this share, love your neighbor, share Jesus challenge. We saw a little bit about it today, how we can tangibly do that interpersonally in person-to-person contact. But we can also do it a variety of other ways. However, we have challenged you to be praying for six people. Have you got your six? Have you been praying for them? I'm trying to take my, my own counsel, and I picked six of my, my own family. And the other day, I got on the keyboard, and I started writing to the most difficult member of my family, just trying to share life. They get the conversation started. And I am praying that I can share Jesus just through that. I don't see them very often. We're not in the same location, uh, not even anywhere close. But my goal is to share Jesus, and I'm praying that God would give me opportunities. Not just like that, but all around me. Are you praying that way? Are you reminded of your calling, what God has for you? See, God reminds Elijah that he's not through with him yet. He's calling him to fulfill his ministry. And that was to anoint the kings and even the next prophet, which was Elisha. This is where we really need to see the necessity of reconnecting with other Christians. That's my next point, reconnecting with other Christians. See, remember when Elijah was on his way to Horeb, he left his servant behind. He didn't want to be around anyone. Depression and discouragement can keep us from being around other people. We just want to isolate ourselves. And there are times where we do need to be alone and be still before the Lord. 
But there are other times where we understand that it's because of our depression that we are keeping ourselves away. We cannot remove ourselves from the body of believers. This is the necessity not only of church attendance, but of being involved in a small group. Now here's why I say that. Because you can hide something if you just see somebody once a week. I mean, we can all play the game. But when you're meeting people on a regular basis, and they're seeing you, they start to know when something's wrong in your life, and they can speak into it. So we need to be encouragers. That's one of the reasons to be a church. And also to be a church, to be encouraged. We need both in our lives. Don't think that you can always be the encourager and never be encouraged. It doesn't work that way. We all need both. I need to be encouraged. I went out with lunch for one of my guys, and my, my, a good friend of mine, uh, and uh, he just says, what's wrong? I was down. He noticed it because I spent a lot of time with him, speaking to my life. And I speak into his. It's a two-way street. Reconnect with other believers. That's what we need to do. Forsaking not the assembling of ourselves together. See, some people though, and this, is, this drives me crazy, when some Christians say, oh, I don't need church. I have, a, I have sin, but I don't need church. I don't need to be around other believers. Well, I wrote this this past week. Saying that you have sin and you don't need church is like saying I have cancer and don't need a hospital. It's the same thing. We need other believers. And we need other believers to speak into our lives because if we don't and we're just going our merry way, reading the Bible, we become the own determiners of what is true. Rather than submitting it to the community of God, our interpretive processes and and who we are and what our life is, we become the sole determiner. In essence, we become gods of our own lives. When we say, I don't need to be under authority, I don't need to be within any other, any other believer, then we're saying, you're saying that I have all the answers and I don't need anybody else. You're believing a lie. And you're setting yourself on a dangerous precipice. It's a slippery slope of disobedience that's going to come down. You need to be with other believers. You need to be in a church where other people can speak in your life and you get to know them. I've seen too many Christians try to be lone rangers. It doesn't work. We need to be together. We need to be together. And lastly, but not least, we need to be ready to coach others to take our place. Look at verse 19. It's my last point in my notes. I know I'm running out of time. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing the twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Are you coaching others to take your place? I mean, Elisha was a farmer. He's going to need time to learn the ropes of being a prophet. And Elijah was to encourage him, to coach him, to teach him what it meant to be a prophet. Are you discipling other individuals? Are you ready to pass on the faith and help people walk closer with Christ? Are you prepared to do that? Are you looking for someone to disciple and coach? It doesn't always mean I'm the one that's telling him about it. I mean, we we looked at the CPR last week. Cultivating the soil, planting the seed, and then we have the, the, the reap the harvest. And sometimes in our life, we are fulfilling one of those three purposes, but we don't know when. We could be cultivating the soil, or we could be planting the seed, just verbally telling them about the gospel, or we could be the one that reaps the benefit of someone else planting and, and, or cultivating the soil and planting the seed. Are you ready to coach others to follow Christ and even help them in their Christian walk as they're trying to get through life and deal with discouragement and deal with pain and try to figure out how to get, go through life. We're to be passing our faith on to the next generation. As it's been said, God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. It must be taught to the next generation. Now as I close this, I note that there are some here who are going through difficult circumstances right now. As, a, as elders, we've been talking just in our elder meeting this past week. We've taken note and just sharing notes with what's going on in people's lives. We know that many of you are really just going through deep times, deep struggles with the economy the way that it is. We see gas prices are going up. Looks like it's going to be at $4 a gallon by May. Probably won't go back down. Food prices are going up. Uh, rents are still going up. It's, it's hard. Some of you are without work. Some of you are just simply discouraged. You're not seeing a progression in your life. You're going through dark, a dark night of the soul. It might be uh, not only a week or a month, it could be years, decades. 
that you've just been dealing with an unsaved spouse or a prodigal child? Well, the scripture is very clear. As James said, is anyone among you suffering? His, his, one of his things to do is let him pray. Get God's perspective. Let him pray. What we want to do right now is, is we want to give you a, a chance, an opportunity to respond to this message in a very tangible way. We're going to turn this little front area up here into an altar. We're going to give you a time to, if you feel so led, to come up and pray before the Lord. I'm going to ask some of the elders to come up. If you want to pray with one of the elders, just go up, tap them on the shoulder, and they will, they will pray with you. It's not something that we're normally doing here, but we need to be responding more tangibly within our services because we are the body of Christ. We need to be able to kneel down together before the Lord to pour our hearts out together because we know that, we're hurt, that some of you are hurting. And, it, and you know, when you're hurting, we hurt. The Scripture says that we're to weep with those who weep. We're to mourn with those who mourn, but we're also to rejoice with those who rejoice. So we see the struggles going on. We see the struggles in your home. We see the struggles in the economy. We see all those things. And it even affects us. As a church, God is doing some great things. I believe we're just seeing, beginning to see a flicker of what could be a mighty flame of God's work within our midst. But right now, we are suffering in some ways just like the rest of you are. When you suffer, we're suffering. I mean, we, as a body, it could be as our church, we notice that even our giving has gone down because people are just struggling. And that's going to lead us. We have to make some very difficult decisions. But it's not just these physical decisions that we make. We want to go to the Lord and get His perspective on all of these things. To pour out our hearts before God. So let's take these next few moments, maybe four or five minutes. And then just come up here or pray where you're at. Maybe turn to someone in the aisle next to you. and You might not know them. You might. But say, I just need prayer right now. I need to pour my heart out. Or maybe you want to come up here and just come with your family and lay your family at the altar. But just come up here now. Let's take a few moments and be silent before the Lord and ask God to show himself to us as a body. Elders, I'm going to ask you to come forward to pray.